Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together at the beginning of this new season of Lent. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want us to hear and what you want us to do during this time uh, of penance and almsgiving. Don't let it be, or don't let it pass without some improvement in our relationship. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. I want to spend a little time after uh, the main subject to talk about Lent. Today's subject is the chapter 12 of the, I mean, chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles. And I started to write out a long uh, lecture here, and then I thought, well, why not uh, cut it down a little bit, and we'll read it together, and then I'll take up some of the main points from there on. Within this short chapter, we find many things uh, behind the scenes that are not always apparent to the casual reader. And that's important when you read scripture. So many people get caught up in some of the odd wording of scripture that they lose sight of the message. And in many cases, particularly if you're reading the Old Testament, it is not always what is being said, but the meaning behind that. And you'll have to stop and think about it. Uh, a couple examples is, you know, Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden for eating an apple. Eh, eh, no, that's not the reason. Uh, they disobeyed a direct command of, of God for a specific reason. You had a similar uh, situation in the Old Testament where Cain and Abel uh, got into a row over uh, their offerings to God and Cain kills Abel. Well, then he gets expelled and uh, from the situation he was in and made to live in a, in a more difficult uh, way uh, and people say, well, gee, that's a huge uh, burden and penance and so forth and so on. The message behind both of those incidents was that God loves us, does not want to punish us, does not want uh, to condemn us to hell in any way, shape, or form, but there are limits. And when you disobey a direct command of God, there has to be punishment. But that doesn't mean that he's cutting you off for the rest of uh, your life. And that is signified in the case of Adam and Eve by the incident of him making clothes, that is God, actually making clothes or showing Adam and Eve how to make clothes for themselves. And in the case of, of Cain, he is marked with a sign uh, to indicate that God is protecting him. So in all of the 
readings of Scripture. If you don't understand something, stop for a minute, ask the Holy Spirit to help you open your mind and, and your heart to the message behind the actual words. Because in many cases, the wording is simplified to get the point across. But remember, a lot of that was written hundreds and many hundreds of years ago, and the style of writing was much different at the time. So just kind of keep that in mind, all right? Let us go on here. The apostles are in the process of developing the church of Christ from all that Jesus had given them. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, who was working overtime, you might say, and uh, to implement the teachings of Christ to the local people. <coughs> now, the time period, the time period of this incident, excuse me, the time period is somewhat unknown. That's one of the unfortunate things about the writings of Scripture. We have very little way of determining when it was written. But because St. Paul is there, and there's another, a few other words that would indicate that this would probably be somewhere between 10 and 15 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and you can understand some of the things that are going on here from both sides. The idea of the separation of Christianity from Judaism was never in their minds at this time period. The apostles and all of those who accepted Jesus Christ continued to be good Jews and tried to be even better Jews. And that's important for us to understand the complexity and the problems that uh, we are faced with here. When you have a faith such as Judaism was at the time that was so bound up in rules to open up your mind and heart to something that is spiritual without a lot of rules supporting it, it is a little difficult. And that's what these Pharisees that came up from Jerusalem and created problems for the people in the area of now southern Turkey, and uh, telling them that they had to observe all of the Jewish laws, including circumcision, in order to be uh, a good Christian. Well, one sort of contradicts the other in a way. Because Judaism is based on laws, whereas Christianity is based on faith. And Jesus, or rather, uh, the Apostle James mentions this later in the chapter here, that uh, our faith is based and our salvation is based on faith in Jesus Christ 
and not on works. But let us continue here. I lost my place, but I'll just repeat a little bit here. The apostles are in the process of developing the church of Christ from all that Jesus had given them and with the help of the Holy Spirit who was working overtime to implement the teachings of Christ to the local people. First to the Jews of Israel and then to the whole world as the apostles spread out in uh, their teachings with the aid of people such as Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Titus, etc. However, they all tried to remain in good standing with the Jewish community and being good Jews and not to separate themselves from non-believers. Peter states this in his short speech in verses uh, 7 to 12. There he explains that God wants to bring all believers together as one body and he uses a quote from the prophet Ezekiel about the restoration of Israel. Now, when they talk about the restoration of Israel, they're not talking about the country of Israel. They're talking about the concept that Israel was to be a very special community here. So we're talking about not the country, but the concept which Christ uh designated as the church. Remember, up through this period of time, there was no thought or desire to become a separated church. And the word church, of course, applies to us today. But the word church, if you translate it back through the Latin, through the Greek, through the to the Hebrew, it comes out assembly. All right. Remember, uh, the word church was never used at the time of this incident. However, this one body concept had many interpretations, as we see when some converted Pharisees, that is, strict Jews, insisted that the Gentile converts must observe the Mosaic laws, including circumcision. Obviously, this created a major problem. First, for the Gentiles, because they could not understand the need for something that didn't relate to the worship of God in Jesus Christ. And then, for the Jews who had observed such laws without question for centuries. The people couldn't understand what was such a big deal? This was something that the Jewish people had done forever. And now if these converted people, the Pharisees thought, and probably rightly so, that they were being converted to Judaism rather than to Christianity because there was no separation yet. It was like a movement within Judaism for many years. Because the Jewish Pharisees were creating, you know, these are Pharisees who were, became believers, but they felt they had to follow the Jewish laws exactly, and so did everybody else. 
it was decided that all the major players in the hierarchy of Christian believers would convene uh, a meeting in Jerusalem to discuss and decide a solution to this problem. This included Peter, Paul, and many of the apostles, and others who were, at this time, bishops um, of the new Christian movement. We can imagine that there was a great deal of discussion, shouting, praying, etc., etc. Well, all right, let's stop for a moment. Here you have a number of people coming in from all over um, the Mediterranean area, you might say. And the Jerusalem Jewish converts are also there. And they have totally different understandings of what Christianity is all about. The converts from the other parts of the country are more open because they have been so Hellenized uh, for centuries now that they were much more uh, able to absorb what was going on and accept it. But the people from the area around Jerusalem and Israel in general were still law-based, and they couldn't understand uh, the freedom that some of these people wanted to express. So this becomes the first major crisis of the new church. And how is it going to be resolved? By all of the main players coming together in Jerusalem, they formed uh, a community, you might say, that went through all of the issues surrounding this idea of not only circumcision, but many other ideas that represented uh, the Jewish faith in its observances. Because there were many dietary laws and other things that had virtually nothing to do with worshiping God. And the Christians, all they knew was Jesus Christ and his life as it was explained. The letters of Paul had not been totally circulated at this time. Some of them probably hadn't even been written by this time because Peter is still in uh, Jerusalem and some of his letters weren't written until he was a prisoner in Rome uh, much later towards the end of his life. All right, so the whole idea of the freedom that Paul is thinking about and the strictness of the beliefs of the Pharisee converts just seemed to clash. But after a great deal of prayer, discussion, uh, and I'm, seeing, I'm sure a lot of exchange of ideas, uh, a letter was finally drafted by James. This is, remember there are three James mentioned in the New Testament. 
And it's kind of confusing as to which is which. You have James the Apostle. You have James, the brother, I mean, the Apostle beside the, the other James, that's the brother of John. And then you have a third James that is often referred to as the brother of Jesus. One of the books uh, that I have on this subject actually says it was the brother of Jesus. Well, that we know is not correct because Mary had no other children. Therefore, there were no biological brothers of Jesus. Uh, we kind of lean towards the fact that this was the brother of the Apostle John, the evangelist, uh, because he became the Bishop of Jerusalem, and he was the first apostle that we know of to be martyred by Herod uh, around the year 42, I think it was, or 46, somewhere in that time frame. All right, so this had to be before that. So we don't know exactly the timing here, um, but it was several years after uh, Christ ascended into heaven. Now, you might say, well, what's so important about this? Well, like I said, it is the first crisis, major crisis of the church, which, if it had not been resolved, could have really split the church into two factions. One believing in the rules and regulations of the Jews, and the other one being a little more relaxed and taking on the appearance of the Hellenists. So it had to be something that had to be resolved. And it was resolved in uh, a letter that was drafted by James, and it didn't really say a heck of a lot as far as we know because we don't have the full context of it. Uh, but we know that they had to uh, abstain uh, from meat that was strangled. Um, and there were two or three different things. Most of these were sort of concessions, you might say, to the Pharisees uh, and a maintaining of some of the, the the results in the letter are not so much important, but the fact that it was resolved, and it seemed to make uh, the people who received it uh, very uh, pleased that they didn't have to observe the uh, whole idea of, circ- of circumcision. And that brings up another point, too, that I'm sure it's from this point on that the wedge between Christianity and Judaism begin to open up a little bit more, more and more over a period of time. Uh, the Jews who remain uh, tied to their beliefs would probably never give up. And yet the Jews that came from other parts of the Mediterranean area were much more uh, open to change because they had been exposed over centuries. Uh, now, do you all understand what Hellenism is or was? Okay. 
the whole idea that was uh, imposed by Alexander the Great back in the early part of the 4th century BC of trying to change the whole Mediterranean area era uh, of people into uh, good people of, of Greek culture. It was the Greek culture, which of course was much more open and uh, had many advantages, but they had some disadvantages as well. Anyways, the uh, <clears throat> Jewish people of areas outside of Israel adopted uh, many of the ideas and concepts of the Hellenists, but continued to remain uh, Jews in good standing. <clears throat> the Jews of Israel neglected or rejected all of uh, the ideas of Hellenism, and that, of course, set up a big problem here. Why is this all important to us today? First, it represents the first major problem affecting the whole church, and it gives us a method by which it was resolved. Second, a meeting of the leaders of, or this is all of the leaders of the Christian community, most importantly, the leader, or the pope as he was later called, and all of the others involved. A thorough discussion of the problem and much praying over various solutions. And a collaborative decision was made and agreed upon, put in writing and disseminated to the entire churches throughout the Mediterranean area, <clears throat> not only back to uh, Jerusalem, but throughout the area. And this format has become the norm for resolving major problems of the church throughout the years that follow, and is now known as the ecumenical councils. This one from Acts, chapter 15, is not included in the list of official councils uh, because there's no documentation other than what is here in the Bible. But I think it's important that we understand uh, what these ecumenical councils were all about and why uh, and what were the major issues um, and so that's why I included this uh, other listing here for you because I'd like to go over some of these here uh, because it's important in a way for us to understand how our church really operates um, and what the effect is on each of us as individuals. Uh, now, you can understand that assuming that this council here in Jerusalem that we just talked about uh, happened around the year 50, somewhere between A.D. 40 and 50, it was after the destruction, well, actually before the destruction of the temple. It was in about the year 66 AD that the separation, no, no, I don't want to use that word, uh, the 
dissension that developed between those people who accepted Christ and became what we now call Christians and those people who refused to do that, uh, the problem began to develop wider and wider, particularly after Paul's letters were written, where Paul began to just uh, tell people right out, you didn't have to observe most of the uh, Mosaic law because it had been fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, that sets up a, a real um, problem between those or with those people who refuse to accept Christ. Right. So, a persecution set up around the middle of the year 66 A.D. and lasted uh, for three and a half years uh, until the destruction of the temple in December of the year 70 A.D. Now, three and a half years happens to be a very coincidental time period because it is mentioned several times in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel. And it's somewhat prophetic. Uh, but I don't want to belabor the point because it doesn't really mean much beyond that. But it took three and a half years for the Romans to finally put uh, Judaism, uh, you might say, to death and destroy the temple which then destroyed Judaism in itself because the priesthood of Judaism was the ruling factor in Israel. Remember, there were no more kings. The kings uh, were sort of banished and the whole idea of the monarchy died out with the Babylonian uh, captivity way back in the 6th century. Between that time and the time of Christ, it was the, the high priest that was pretty much in power. But also, remember, Judaism uh, or Israel was under the domination of other conquerors continuously from uh, the 6th century uh, to the time of uh, the Romans destroying the temple. Um, you had first the Babylonians, then the Medes, then the Persians, uh, then the Greeks, then the Romans. So they were always under some kind of domination for that period of time. <coughs> um, and once the destruction, once the temple was destroyed, then there was no need for the priesthood, and so it sort of died out at that point in time. Uh, later, around the second century, there was a movement to try to reconcile and uh, reenact uh, Judaism, but it never got off the ground, uh, never really developed into anything. It wasn't until ar around the fourth century when uh, the Talmud was finally put into writing uh, between the 4th and the 6th century over a period of uh, 200 years. The Talmud was finally put into writing and 
the hierarchy of the uh, Jewish community was uh, the rabbi, and that was as far as it went. Okay. I'd like to go through some of these here and talk about them because they're rather important here. Uh, so the first ecumenical council didn't happen until uh, 325 A.D. And that was because of the persecutions that continued uh, and the domination of Rome over Christianity and Israel and so forth and so on. Uh, this was the period of the catacombs where the Christians... Uh, had to hide out, uh, not only bury their dead, but they had to use the catacombs for meeting places. Um, and this was, of course, primarily in Israel, but as the movement spread out, it was a little more relaxed on the outside uh, perimeter of the Roman Empire. Okay. Uh, but in 325, after, after the Edict of Milan in 313, uh, by the Emperor Constantine, um, they finally were able to get together and develop, uh, the ecumenical councils. They didn't call them that at the time. But nevertheless, they were the same format as described in, uh, chapter 15. Uh, for the Council of Nicaea, very important. Its principal action was the condemnation of Arianism. Most of these councils in the first uh, thousand years or so was to straighten out heresies. I'll talk about that in a minute. The most devastating of these early heresies which denied the divinity of Christ was Arianism. The heresy was authored by Arius of Alexandria, a priest, Arians, and several kinds of semi-Arians propagandized their tenets widely, established their own hierarchies and churches, and raised havoc in the church for several centuries. The council contributed to the formulation of the Nicene Creed. This is the creed that we say every Sunday at Mass, the Nicene Creed, and fixed the date of Easter, which was a bone of contention for many, many years, and passed regulations concerning clerical discipline, adopted civil divisions of the empire as model for the jurisdictional organization of the church. That's a big mouthful there. But it shows that for two or three hundred years, the church was not really well organized because of persecutions and dissensions and problems all over. Now, what are heresies? Heresies are movements by people generally with good intentions. They don't start out to automatically uh, butt up against the rules and regulations of the church. They have an idea that they feel is right and worthwhile. Obviously, they have done a lot of praying, but they haven't truly listened to the Holy Spirit um, because they want their way. So heresies in general were started by honest and, and 
people who had some good ideas, and some of what they had was okay, uh, but a lot of it wasn't. We have a similar situation right here in Sacramento uh, today, and that is the church that calls it uh, St. Michael's in Carmichael. We've talked about this before, so I don't want to belabor the point. These, this church is a community of related churches called uh, the Society of Pope Pius X, I believe. Uh, and there are a number, many numbers of people who have separated themselves from the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and have gone over to this one, feeling that there's very little difference, except that the main issue was that this, these people refused to accept the changes of Vatican II in 1965, and have retained uh, the mass, the Tridentine mass as it was prior to the changes uh, into the uh, common language of the people. All right. So the church in Carmichael and its related churches are not to be attended uh, by Catholics who want to remain in good standing. And I have that in writing directly from our local bishop. Uh, so, heresies uh, can take all kinds of forms, and people will sometimes will question them and say, well, that doesn't seem so bad. You know? why, why can't we do it that way? Well, the whole idea of Rome keeping a tight control on what we do and how we do it is to avoid what Christianity has become after the Protestant Reformation. And those who are not Catholic, those who still remain and call themselves Christians, have numbered over 35,000 different churches. Uh, it's, it's almost unbelievable to understand, but I because of some relatives, have acknowledged, uh, have knowledge of some of these uh, churches who, uh, when two pastors or two uh, ministers uh, didn't agree with each other, uh, they would split and one would go his way and the other would go his way and they would start another church. Well, then uh, those two would split later and become four churches and then so on, forth and so on. Uh, the whole idea of Rome keeping a tight control is very important to the unity of the church. For example, have you ever uh, noticed and wondered why the priest always reads uh, the Mass uh, from the, the lectionary on, on the altar? He's done it uh, hundreds and hundreds of times, and he probably knows it uh, from memory. But the rule is he has to read it because 
prior to that rule being developed, priests would add their own little words here and there and everywhere, and then sometimes forget because they would memorize it and uh, read it, I mean, give it without reading it. And over a period of time, it changed. Just two or three or four years ago, we had uh, some changes that were designed to bring back unity that had developed. And every so often, this will happen. So we, we, I think we have to respect uh, and appreciate the control of Rome. Yes, ma'am. Uh, now, why is it used to be the Holy Ghost, and then they change it to the Holy Spirit. I've always wondered, why did they do that? Well, because ghosts, to some people, get caught up in a lot of this fiction, and ooh, you know. Uh, really? Oh, yes. Okay. And go, particularly for children. Oh, okay. Particularly for Thanks. children, the idea of ghosts. Now, a ghost, it's an interesting question, because there is a relationship. The word ghost is pronounced Geist in German. All right. And the whole idea of gospel, our word for gospel, comes from the German because it is a sort of a combination of gut spiel, meaning good news, which was what was a common phrase in its Hebrew version, way back at the time of the apostles, the good news. The good news of the idea of Christ fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament was the good news. And the word good news was used for centuries. Well, sometimes I sort of forget to say the Holy Ghost there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's the intention, not so much the words. Yes, Justin. Uh, uh, Thirty-five thousand. Is that just in the U.S. or worldwide? Worldwide. Worldwide. Yes. Yes. Because you have many divisions in Europe, just as we do here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. The next uh, council was the Council of Constantinople. Uh, it condemned various forms of Arianism also because this went on for centuries, really, as well as, and I can't even pronounce that one, uh, which denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. You see, some people, because they couldn't understand the role of the Holy Spirit, and it did take centuries before the church to come out and really explain the role of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, naturally, councils, certain people decided, well, that wasn't that important, let's just forget about it. And this council said, no, 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 the Trinity is made up of three divine persons within the one God. Uh, the council also contributed to the formulation of the Nicene Creed that had already been established in the previous council. Some wording had to be slightly changed. Okay. 
the Council of Ephesus. It condemned Nestorianism, which denied the unity of the divine and human nature in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, you can understand that. To people who were uneducated, many people couldn't understand how could Jesus be both God and man at the same time. Well, of course, God can do anything. And this was, there was a reason for God to take on the form of man uh, to be offered back as mankind's offering to the Father for the forgiveness of sin. All right. No one else had anything or could do anything that was equal to a divine offense. And therefore, it had to be something from God himself. And it was God himself that came to earth in the form of Jesus. But because this was not thoroughly understood at this early time, uh, they decided, well, this wasn't important, really. We'll just cut it out. No, no, no. Uh, Ephesus, uh, the first council of Ephesus. It, uh, <coughs> let's see, is that the one? I, don't know, I just. Well, it condemned Nestorianism, which denied the unity and divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, it defined Mary as the mother of God. This is very important also. Uh, even though Mary was always understood the mother of Jesus Christ, giving her the title of the mother of God set up a great deal of dissension and problems that had to be resolved. The history of this particular um, council is very interesting. It's rather long and tedious reading, but it's still rather interesting. Most of these are available on the internet now if you wanted to get into some of the uh, finer details. The Council of Chalcedon, it condemned another one that I can't pronounce, uh, which denied the humanity of Jesus and claimed that he had only one nature, the divine nature. The previous one said he wasn't divine. This one says he's only divine. <coughs> well, but you see, these appear to us when we read them like this off the sheet of paper to be no more important than the one that is mentioned in chapter 15 of uh, the Acts of the Apostles. However, if the church had let them go, it would be like <coughs> the Protestant Reformation. I highly recommend a book by Brad Gregory uh, called the... <laughs> uh, something about rebels. Uh, I forget off the offhand. No, I don't think so. 
Rebel in the ranks. Yes. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah. Thank you, Dick. Uh, Rebel in the ranks by Grad, Brad Gregory. A very, very interesting book. <laughs> it is not difficult to read, and it will make you appreciate your Catholic beliefs and your Catholic Church much more. <coughs> Council of uh, Constantinople. It condemned three chapters. Nestorianism, uh, tainted writings of Theodore something or other here and two other related uh, heretics. Uh, the whole idea in the first century of the church, these heresies got to the point where excommunications uh, were thrown right and left at a lot of people, including princes and kings and queens and so forth and so on, uh, because they all wanted their way, and the church said no. Uh, so it, it got to be quite interesting here. The third council of Constantinople, it condemned another monotheism, uh, which held that Christ had only one will, the divine will, and it censured the Pope for a letter that uh, confused the issue. <laughs> so even the Pope is uh, can be uh, reprimanded. Um, that doesn't happen very often, and uh, since the last four, three or four hundred years, uh, that has changed quite noticeably. Okay. The Council of Lateran, the first, the first ecumenical council, the first council that was designated as ecumenical. The word ecumenical really means a body that represents all people of all denominations of all the world. Okay. And the earlier ones did not call themselves ecumenical because they weren't quite measuring up to that uh, description. Yeah. Yes? Was there a council that decided that the priests could not be married? Yeah, well, no, that, well, yes and no. Uh, that be, I think that's in here. Um, that came along starting way back in about the third century fourth century, uh, actually in Spain, uh, celibacy was adopted by the churches in Spain and gradually spread uh, to the whole church. And then in around, around 1123, it was made uh, the law of the church. Yeah. That, that council. Uh, I'm not sure not what. In the council itself. Uh, not in the council itself. No. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Let me let me give you a little background here. Um, the priest here at Saint Clair mentioned this morning that in the early days, penance had to be something that was done 
in public. You had to do something that, uh, where you asked for forgiveness of your sins in public. And most of this took the, uh, was demonstrated by putting on sackcloth, uh, you know, a certain garment and standing at the door of the church and asking for forgiveness. Well, that became a little, uh, uh, well, it, it ran into a lot of problems, let's put it that way. So what they did was then, it was about the same time in the 3rd or 4th century when the monasteries began to uh, be developed primarily by first uh, by St. Bernard and um, a number of others. Monasteries over all uh, in the areas <coughs> were developed and it was thought that the monks of the monastery would be uh, worthy of forgiving sin. You know, to, for several hundred years, it was only bishops that could give absolution. Uh, but when that became unwieldy uh, because of the number of people versus the number of bishops, um, they opened the door to having the monks in the monastery hear confessions primarily because they had no wives and they wouldn't go home and discuss the sins of, of the people that they heard uh, because they were uh, cloistered monks. Okay, I think smart thinking. Uh, well, of course, then later on, you see the priesthood that we know of today did not develop for several hundred years into the church. It was the bishop and the deacons. Um, the Council of Lateran, the first ecumenical council to be held in the West. Most of the previous councils, uh, well, some of them were in, uh, well, they were almost all in the eastern part of the church. Okay. It endorsed the provisions of the Concordant of Worms, that's not a correct pronunciation, Worms. It's more like Worms. It's a German town that is still in existence. Concerning the investiture, ordination of clergy, and approved reform measures in 25 canons. This might be, to answer your question, this might be where it was uh, made official uh, that celibacy was required. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Lateran three, it enacted measures against Albigensian, uh, the Albigensian heresy and other heresies and provided a new rule that the Pope needed to be elected by two-thirds uh, vote of the cardinals. Uh, this uh, was done more or less to rule out favoritism and so forth. Uh, Lateran uh, 4, it ordered the requirement of the annual reception of the sacraments of reconciliation and communion, defined the term of transubstantiation, 
to explain the consecration of the bread, uh, bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, it adopted additional measures to counteract teachings of several heresies and added 70 new canons. When I say canons, don't think of guns. Uh, these are laws, okay? That's what we call canon law, all right? Um, let me just stop here for a minute here. Uh, it defined the terms transubstantiation, which is the change of the bread and wine into the body and the blood of Christ during the ceremony of consecration within the Mass. Many people uh, could not understand and would not accept that. And, of course, many people doubted that. I don't know if you are aware that there are many, many, many recorded incidents of when a host is broken, it begins to bleed. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there was just one not too long ago recorded in the paper. Uh, I take the National Catholic, Catholic Register, which uh, talks about these things in a little more detail. But there have been many incidents where uh, people have doubted whether or not this could, this little piece of, of uh, hard bread uh, could uh, be the body of blood of Christ just because after uh, the priest said some few words over it. Uh, and there are several cases where when the bread is broken, it begins to bleed. Let's go on. The Council of Lyons, or Lyon, as the French would say, uh, it confirmed the disposition uh, disp of Frederick II and approved 22 canons. Now, remember, between the uh, end of the 6th century A.D., and the beginning of the 16th century A.D., for a thousand years, the Catholic Church was the only major organization of its size that was recognized as having any authority by everyone. That doesn't mean everyone agreed with it. And when I'm saying everyone, I'm talking about other countries. Um, because of the collapse of the Roman Empire, society in general began to fall back and degrade itself because it had no organized rulers, it had no laws to go by, it had virtually no power of its own, and so it began to disintegrate. This was what eventually uh, was called the Dark Ages, but it was the Catholic Church that maintained some degree of authority. And though that authority wasn't always accepted by other countries uh, or organizations, it was at least recognized. 
big difference between recognized and accepted. Uh, and that went on for a period of a thousand years. <clears throat> well, over a period of time, uh, human beings will be human beings, and many of them took advantage of it for their own personal goods and needs and wants. Um, and again, if you read this book that I mentioned, <clears throat> Rebel in the Ranks, it's regarding the Protestant Reformation, but it brings out a lot of that, and I have found it, it fascinating. Let's go on here. The Second Council of Lyon. It accomplished a temporary reunion <clears throat> on separated Eastern churches with the Roman Church. Remember the split between Constantinople and Rome <laughs> happened several times over a period of about 700 years. Uh, Constantinople was established by Constantine's father okay, and was the center of society, center of uh, virtually everything for quite a while. Uh, after he died, Constantius died, Constantinople became more or less under the uh, protection of his son, Constantine. And that went back and forth, back and forth over the centuries. <coughs> and even as the church began to develop and organize a little bit better, the whole idea of the eastern branch of Christianity started to pull away from the Roman branch of Christianity. And little by little, it developed into what is now called the Eastern churches. Uh, <coughs> all right, it, it, it uh, accomplished a temporary, underlying temporary, reunion of separated Eastern churches with the Roman church and developed new regulations regarding the elections of future popes, approved 31 new canons. The Council of Vienna, it suppressed the Knights Templar and enacted a number of reform decrees. Well, see, some of these were not overly important to us. Uh, I don't think most people know what the Knights Templar was all about, <clears throat> nor, you know, does it really affect us. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a council, it is considered an ecumenical council, and its uh, decrees and findings and so forth are open to the public. <clears throat> the Council of Constance attempted to end the Western Schism, that is the complete break of the Eastern churches away from the Roman churches, involving two or three claimants to the papacy and rejected 
the teachings of Wycliffe, who was very instrumental in supporting the Reformation, and condemned Huss as a heretic, considered but rejected a proposal of the ecumenical councils being over the Pope. That was a major issue in several of the ecumenical councils, <clears throat> and in some degrees it still is uh, an issue that is brought up from time to time today. At times, people felt that the uh, council in total could override the rules of the Pope. And that had been, uh, and still is to some degree, a bone of contention. But uh, in the current position, uh, the Pope is, uh, is the last word on everything. Okay. Yes? Uh, regarding the Jewish assignment to the Pope, was that, was it then anti-Pope? Uh, yes, in a, in a way, uh, that is actually the Avignon Popes, where the Popes moved to Avignon in France for a period of about seven years, 70 years rather, and there were actually four Popes involved in that time. It was by the efforts of St. Catherine of Siena, who finally talked them into coming back to Rome where, it was, where they belong. All right. The position of Rome <clears throat> is extremely important to the legal side uh, of Christianity. Okay. Our letter in five it defined the relationship and the position of the Pope over ecumenical councils. See, that was just the reverse of the previous one. Uh, counteracted certain claims of liberty by the church in France. Condemned certain erroneous teachings concerning the nature of the human soul. Reflected concern for abuses in the church regarding indulgences which became a major issue during the Reformation, but failed to take immediate action before the Reformation. Yes, yes it is, unfortunately. The Reformation uh, was probably the most serious confrontation that the church has ever faced. And, of course, it still faces it in a way, but there is uh, a little more civility in, in going. Uh, during the 16th and 17th century, there were actually wars, I mean battles, between Christians <clears throat> and those people who remained faithful to other faiths. Um, and it's interesting to uh, see the outcome. It's like God was there fighting with them. Uh, the whole War of the Roses, uh, the War of uh, the Thirty Years' War, 
most of those kinds of wars were started over religion and religious ideas uh, and claimants. But one of the things that happened, one of the good things that happened uh, during the early part of the Reformation was the Council of Trent in 1545. This was up till this time. This was the most important of all of the ecumenical councils because it fixed so many things that needed to be fixing. It fixed the code of canon, canon law, the rule of faith, and what it stands for. It defined the nature and the source of the term justification, mankind's road to salvation. Definitions of and explanations of grace, faith, original sin, and its effects. The sacrificial nature of the Mass, that goes back to uh, the doubts that some people had about transubstantiation. Okay. The sacrificial nature of the Mass, the veneration of the saints, and the use of sacred images, belief in purgatory, and the doctrine of indulgences, jurisdiction of the Pope over the whole church, and issued many reforms in the liturgy and discipline within the church, <clears throat> one of them being the lectionary and the daily missal. The churches did not have a daily missal or a lectionary that was fixed for the entire church for the whole world. A lot of the uh, local areas, local churches, local bishops would develop their own. So the readings at the Mass uh, were not uniformly required as they are today. Today we start, as, as you all know, obviously, uh, a new time period within the church year. That is the period of Lent. And let me digress. Well, I'll leave that till later and come back. <clears throat> Council of Trent is very, very important. And it is only superseded by the Vatican II Council in 1962 through 1965. Some of these councils went as much as 18 years. That, that doesn't mean that they uh, were meeting for 18 years every day or anything. It just meant that they were opened and not closed for a period of time uh, for a variety of reasons. In the early days, it was because of travel taking so long. It was because of travel it was dangerous in many ways. Remember communications, there was uh, there was no uh, formal forms of transfer of communication of any way. Uh, in one book I read, 
it said it took three months for an important letter to get from a bishop in Germany to Rome. Three months. Because you just couldn't find people that were going back and forth as easily as the people do today. And today, of course, communication is instantaneously to virtually any part of the world. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But, but nevertheless. Um, so Vatican II uh, was a tremendous jump ahead. Uh, and it reviewed virtually all of these councils and set up uh, entirely new ideas, new uh, or refreshed uh, thought, thinking about many of the concepts of the church. In fact, I was going to bring in, and I forgot it, uh, I have a couple of books on the documents that came out of Vatican II. There were 16 major documents that came out of Vatican II, and then later, many uh, lesser documents came from each of those. Uh, they covered the full spectrum of our beliefs and pretty much our life cycle. Uh, land. Oh, yes, yes, land. Uh, well, as Father Remo said this morning at St. Clair here, I uh, mentioned that there was a new time period. Actually, there are four, well, I guess you could say five time periods within the church calendar. All right? And our lectionaries reflect that. Beginning with Advent. Advent is the beginning of the, the, the first Sunday, and Advent is the beginning of the new church year which is around the 1st of December. I uh, can run into the last Sunday in November, depending uh, on the calendar, etc. But the church year begins with Advent, which is, of course, the beginning of the Easter season. So you have Advent, then you have Christmas, Christmas period runs roughly two weeks. Ten days to fourteen days, roughly. All right. Then you have what is called ordinary time. Ordinary time is when there is no major uh, ceremonies or um, observances such as Lent, Easter, or Christmas. And then you have the period of Lent, which of course starts today, and that runs for 42 days, or 40 days really, and then you have three days uh, in addition to that, um, the Triduum, as it is called. Then you have the Easter season, which runs for almost 40 days afterwards. So you have four major identifiable periods, Lent and Easter, Advent and Christmas, and then the other time is called ordinary time, which does not have um, 
any specific ceremonies attached to it. And that's kind of the way the church year is set up. All right. We recognize, uh, as I said, the first uh, Sunday in Advent as the new church year, but we recognize Pentecost Sunday as the birthday of the church, which some to some people is a little confusing. But anyways, any other major questions? Yes, Connie. Oh, the the Catholic fast. Uh, <laughs> all right, because there are all kinds that might be. Have you got a couple hours? You know. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, because we were a little late in starting, we I'm sure can spend a few minutes. Uh, we don't have to go right away. The whole purpose of fasting, and <clears throat> I'm thank you. I'm glad you brought it up. The whole purpose of fasting, the whole purpose of penance at Lent is to direct our mind and our heart to the idea of Christ dying for us. All right. <clears throat> so, uh, when we were kids, you know, we were told, oh, give up candy. Well, what the heck has that got to do with Christ dying for us? You know? Uh, I say, don't do some, don't give up something that's negative, that's self-serving. Do something that's positive. It might be including giving up something so that you can do something else for someone else. But don't spend your advent giving up things and then having your body crave for them all the more. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing worse than telling the body it can't have something, you know. <laughs> it, yes, the body has a mind of its own. And so look at something that is positive in the way of something different. It might be just saying an extra uh, rosary or it might be going to church a little more, uh, you know, or it might be donating food to the um, shelters or uh, the food banks. There's so, uh, so many positive things that you could do. All right. But as far as the regulations, and I think that's what Connie was getting uh, to, is that there's only two days when everybody has to fast and abstain in Lent. Today is one of them. Good Friday is the other. All right. That's fast and it's stay. Dick? Well, there are no, there's no seniors in here. Well, Dick, Dick is right. They let... They let those poor people who are over 50, I don't see anybody over 59 in here. Uh, uh, yes, they let people over 59. That is people who have reached their 60th birthday. Okay. All right. And they do not have to 
uh, abstain from food. Uh, but I mean, they have to do not have to fast. They do have to abstain today from meat and on Good Friday. All right. Fasting and abstinence are two different things. Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, but the thing is, God's not going to come down and strike you because you had a, you know, a cookie between meals or something of that kind. But try to keep it in mind that this is a season that you want to come closer to God. The whole idea is take an inventory of where you are in your relationship with God and what needs to be, Gail, just push it. Uh, what needs to be done uh, to bring you closer and make your Christianity, your Catholic faith more meaningful. That's what Lent is all about. Yes, Julie. It is recommended, but not required. All right. See you Sunday. Except Lent, Ash Wednesday, and Good Friday. All right. Yes. It is recommended that you abstain from meat on Friday, but it is not officially required. Remember, the church doesn't want to put hardships on people for the sake of hardships. If they don't have a meaning and a purpose, then what good is it? And so the whole idea of Lent is to have you give some extra attention to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. With that, let's end another prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only here to understand chapter 15 and its effects on the church, but help us to understand the whole idea of what Lent is all about. You are not trying to punish us. You are trying to draw us closer to you. And that is the whole idea of this new season that we're just entering. So we ask your blessing on our efforts. And we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name.